listening to a special episode of the AEBC podcast. For more information about Antioch East Baptist Church, visit our website at antiocheast.com. I invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning. We have the privilege of examining Peter's second letter, the third chapter, in verses 8 through 15. We find ourselves in 2 Peter chapter 3 to think upon the second advent of Christ. In other words, His coming return. You might be familiar with the formal season of Advent, which lasts for four Sundays leading up to Christmas. That word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. And it's a translation of the Greek word parousia, which is actually a word found in verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 3. The season of Advent is meant to give special Christian attention and reflection on the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. In our home church at Liberty Baptist Church, we are dedicating these weeks to the second coming of Christ. And so that's been on my mind and heart. This is a text that I have thought about much in recent weeks and and thought that it would be a good passage for us to look at today. The title of my sermon is Delay Before the Day, The Certainty of Christ's Return. My hope in preaching this sermon is that all of us would have an increased watchfulness and anticipation for that great day when the Lord Jesus will return. And upon thinking upon that great day, it would lead us to further holiness, repentance, evangelism, hope, and peace. And in order to do that, we will ask and answer four questions concerning the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 15. But before we do that and read the passage, let us go to the Lord now in prayer. Oh Lord, I pray that you would illumine your word for us, your people. Thank you for this church, its regenerate membership, its stance on sound doctrine and expository preaching, its ministers in Ron and Will and the other people here, God. And I pray that this would in a small way, continue to edify the saints here at Antioch East. Pray that you would do much in our midst now. We ask that you would speak to us, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to begin reading in verse 4, and you'll understand why in just a moment, as verse 4 is really the contextual marker that helps us understand exactly what Peter is saying in verses 8 through 15. So 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. They, the false teachers, will say... Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished." But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then verse 8, our passage. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies or elements will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. Second Peter was written by the Apostle Peter in the mid-60s to Christians in northern Asia Minor. And the purpose of this letter is largely to combat the false teaching that you see largely in chapter 2 and that we read earlier in Second Peter 3 Four, Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 17, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter's concerned that the infiltration of the false teachers would influence the stability of these Christians, and so he writes to them a second time. Chapter 2 extrapolates the various errors of these false teachers. They are blasphemers, twisters of God's Word. They are wicked, and they doubt the Lord's return. They doubt the day of the Lord. Indeed, this is what prompts Peter's exposition of the coming day of the Lord is their skepticism surrounding Christ's return. As we read in chapter 3, verse 4, they ask, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These false teachers have reasoned that God was not going to intervene in bringing about the day of the Lord because He had not intervened since the beginning of creation. But what they failed to recognize is that indeed God has intervened, hasn't He? Yeah. Attested by the Old Testament. Second Peter talks about God casting the wicked angels into hell when they sinned. Chapter 2, verse 4. God judged the world through the flood. Chapter 2, verse 5. God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's their de denial and deliberate oversight of these judgments that has caused within these false teachers a desire to carry out the passions of their flesh. So with that background in mind, I want us to think this morning on four questions concerning the day of the Lord. Four questions concerning the day of the Lord. First, what is it? What is the day of the Lord? One scholar helpfully defined the day of the Lord as, quote, God's decisive and final intervention in history to judge his enemies and save his people. It is a term that is used at least 25 times in the scripture to describe his judgments in history and to anticipate that final great day of God the Almighty. Day of the Lord appears Frequently in the prophets, as seen in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Zephaniah, and Malachi. And each occurrence of the day of the Lord 
where God intervenes in history and judges his enemies and saves his people, it anticipates this great day of the Lord at the end of history where God will definitively and finally judge all of his enemies and vindicate the righteous. In Peter's writings, there are similar expressions to talk about this same final day of the Lord. He calls it the day of judgment, the day of God, the day of visitation. The Apostle Paul circumscribes the day in 1 Corinthians 1.8 as the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, connecting the day of the Lord with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ himself in John 12 calls this day the last day. And from the surrounding verses in 2 Peter 3, we see that this is indeed a day of judgment. Verse 9, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But it's also a day of the salvation for the godly. Where all of God's people who have ever repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation will be saved. It's a day when God will finally gather all of his people to himself and he will give them resurrection bodies and they will dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a day of vindication where God will extinguish evil and carry out justice. It's a day that ushers in this new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. It's a day of fulfilled promise where Christ returns and the day of eternity Dawns. This is the day of the Lord. The second question that this text calls us to ask is, why has the day of the Lord been delayed? Indeed, this is one of the central emphases of this passage. And the question that prompts the false teachers to even consider the second coming of the Lord is, well, why hasn't it come? We see in verse 8, Peter calls the readers to not overlook this one fact. That with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. In contrast to these false teachers who have deliberately, verse 4, overlooked God's powerful creation of the world by his word and destruction of the world via the flood, Peter's readers, us, should not overlook this one fact. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In short, what this verse is telling us is that God has a different perspective on time than we have. And thus, we cannot interpret God's timetable by our human understanding of time. In verse 8, Peter draws on and adapts Psalm 90 verse 4. Where there, the psalmist differentiates the brevity of human life with the eternity of God. Here in 2 Peter, though, he does something a bit different. Peter contrasts the impatience of human expectations with the eternity of God. Psalm 90 affirms, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And this timeless eternity of God assures us that the passing of time does not hinder his oversight over all creation. It does not diminish the power of his anger, nor does it weaken the pleasantness of his steadfast love. That's what Psalm 90 posits about the eternality of God. We know this to be true because God is sovereign over time. He transcends time. He exists outside of time. God's being is not affected by time. So whereas we are impatient and disturbed by this delay, God is patient 
and carefully working out His eternal purposes. The passing of time and the seeming delay in Christ's return should not concern believers as they wait for the fulfillment of God's promise. The marking of time, we could say, is irrelevant in evaluating the trustworthiness of God. If He has not brought about His promise, He has good reason for doing so. And He will eventually bring about His promise for our good. We should not be concerned about the delay of the Lord for many reasons, but verse 8 tells us because the passing of a thousand years is like the passing of a single day to God. Moreover, the New Testament does not prescribe a certain date or particular lapse of time before the Lord's return. It's important to note in verse 8 that Peter is using an analogy. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter does not say that for God, his days equal a thousand years, but instead it's as a thousand years. These false teachers deliberately forgot the fact that God relates to time different than humans, and we're not to forget that fact. Peter continues in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. And that word promise harkens back to verse 4 and the question of the false teachers, where is the promise of His coming? The promise, of course, is Christ's return. These false teachers believed too much time had elapsed for Christ's return to be credible. But Peter's reply here is that God is not slow, but intentional in His delay. Though these false teachers count the Lord's delay as slowness, it's actually an expression of His patience with sinners. God is doing something. With his delay, as he's doing something with all the ways in which he particularly carries out his purposes at different times. In other words, God has a positive purpose in delaying his return. Douglas Moo, a faithful commentator, has observed, rather than God's delay being a sign of God's lack of concern, his delay in sending Christ in judgment is a sign of his deep concern for human beings. The second question this test calls us to ask is, why has the day of the Lord been delayed? I think there are at least three answers. The first is that what we've already seen is to reveal God's relation to time, that His relation to time is different than ours. But there's a second reason that this text puts in front of us, and that's to express God's patience with sinners. That's why the Lord has delayed. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's delay evidences God's patience. That word patience in verse 9 is the same word used in 1 Peter 3.20 to speak of God's patience in the days of Noah when he delayed the flood. So this supposed slowness of which the end of all things is brought about is actually owing to God's grace. God is slow to anger. As Exodus 34, 6 and Numbers 14, 18 and other texts tell us, Christ has not returned because God does not desire any to perish. That is, enter eternal judgment, but for all to repent and be spared God's wrath. God's delay is intended and it is purposeful and it is intended to bring about repentance for sinners. 
This means that God has given unbelievers an undeserved opportunity to be saved during God's delay. There's several things we could talk about at this point in the passage. One is that if you're not a Christian here, you should consider this passage as God's kind providence to you to prompt you to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, to humble yourself, to see yourself as a sinner before a holy God who could never enter this realm of righteousness because you do not have a righteousness of your own. You are in need of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who has lived a perfect life in obedience to God the Father. Who has died a substitutionary death in the place of sinners. To pay a once for all ransom for sins. And he was raised on the third day as the accepted sacrifice for sins. And this Christ is coming back. And God's delay is intended to give you an opportunity to turn away from yourself. And to receive all the benefits of Christ's salvation. There's another intention though. And that is the church should use this period of delay for evangelism and missions engagement. The time of grace will soon run out. And thus we should be about the work of sharing the gospel and being influencers for people to turn to the things of God and be saved. We see in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief. The emphasis on that verse is on the word will. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. There's no doubt about it. That's why part of the title of my sermon is the certainty of Christ's return. The day is certain. The day is fixed in heaven. Peter's analogy of a thief coming recalls the teaching of Christ, doesn't it? Matthew 24, Luke 12 And it underscores that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. It will come when no one's prepared for it. And thus, the Lord Jesus in his teaching ministry said, Stay awake, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter himself said in 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is near. The false teachers have scorned the idea that God will intervene in history and that history will suddenly change, but their skepticism is ungrounded because the Lord has promised that He's coming and He's coming like a thief in the night. Christ will return and He will fulfill all of His promises. And the only way to escape that day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly is to reach repentance which God desires of every person to reach. Why has the day of the Lord been delayed to reveal God's relation to time, to express God's patience with sinners, but also to gather in the full number of His people? Look again with me at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And the you there specifically is speaking of the beloved of God, seen in verses 8 15, 17, it's used seven times of God's people in Peter's first and second letter. Beloved here communicates that Christians are recipients of God's saving affection. We see in this verse that God is not inactive, but active in fulfilling His plan of salvation. The people that He has chosen from eternity past, He is making sure in the period of His delay that all of them reach repentance and come to a saving knowledge of the truth. God is patiently waiting 
and active in bringing the elect to salvation. When the requisite number of God's people repent, the end will then arrive. But only God knows that number and the timing of their repentance, and God will make sure to bring to Himself all those He has set His eternal love toward, the beloved of God. You can tell in verse 9 that this is a verse that calls for careful exegetical analysis. On the one hand, God genuinely, sincerely, desires the salvation of all in one sense. But we know from even chapter 3 verse 7 that God does not ultimately ordain all to be saved. The Bible does not teach universalism, does it? That all will reach repentance and come to a knowledge of the truth. They choose otherwise. Chapter 3 verse 7 says that God is keeping heaven and earth stored up for fire and for the destruction of the ungodly. But here's what we can say about verse 9. That God's delay is an expression of His patience with sinners and is integral to the fulfillment of His plan of salvation as God is patient in gathering in the full number of His elect. The third question concerning the day of the Lord. What in part will happen when the day of the Lord arrives. What a task for me to come up here and tell you all the details of the day of the Lord. That's why I very carefully said in my outline what in part will happen when the day of the Lord arrives. The in part um, just informs us that there is no single passage that gives all the details surrounding the day of the Lord and the second coming of Christ, but this is a piece of the pie that we should understand and put in our pocket as far as knowing more about Christ's return. What in part will happen on that day? We see in verses 10 and 12 that there will be cosmic upheaval. That this is a cataclysmic event. Verses 10 and 12 describe three parallel occurrences in line with the day of the Lord. And these occurrences are all focused on the destruction of the universe and, to be honest, are difficult to interpret. But I don't want us to miss uh, the forest for the trees here. So here's what verses 10 and 12 are saying, the main point. God will destroy the entire world and then He will bring in a new heavens and a new earth. Keep in mind that Peter is not writing to satisfy all of our end-time curiosity, though we wish at times there there was a a book that would give us all the details of that. We just don't have it. Um, But we do know something and can be very unified on those details of Christ's return. First, verse 10 says that the heavens will pass away with a roar. Greek writers used the term with a roar to express piercing rushing sounds such as the hissing of a snake or the whistle of an arrow or the spear through the air. And in connection with fire that you see throughout the passage, I think it's most likely that with a roar communicates the crackling of flames as the heavens are being destroyed. Next, the heavenly bodies or elements. I have a footnote in my Bible that says it can also be translated elements. And I think this most likely refers to the basic building blocks of the earth. These will be burned up and dissolved. And like Peter does in verses 5 and 7, he puts together heavens and earth to communicate the totality of God's creation. That in this case will be destroyed by fire. From the parts of creation that are unseen like the heavens to the basic atomic components that make up the creation 
like earth, air, fire, water. This theme is carried forward into verse 12. The heavens will be set on fire and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Peter also states in verse 10, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. When all is burned up, the result is that the earth and all the works performed on the earth will be laid bare, exposed, nothing hidden from the Lord, including the type of lives you and I lived on the earth. All will be exposed. All will be laid bare. There's nothing that is done on the earth that is outside the view of God. And all of it will be brought to judgment on that day. Peter is intentional in the way in which he communicates the day of the Lord to be able to get to holy living. And this is the fourth question that we can ask about this text. How should we live in view of the coming day of the Lord? Peter's point, why he's given so much emphasis to the physical destruction of the world, is for us to live holy lives in the world. That's the connection we need to see in this passage. That he's, he's not giving us a detailed analysis of the end times. But he's giving attention to the dissolving, the burning up, the fire of the world. To be able to influence and change how we live in this world. You see in verse 11 the word since. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people? ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Verses 11 and 14 have similar transitions. Since, therefore, since these are things are taking place in light of these things happening, we should be these kind of holy people. Since the world is temporary, we should live holy lives, godly lives. The command to be holy is sandwiched between two verses that assert that this present world will be destroyed by fire. So even though you and I may not see obvious signs of the world's end around us, we are to constantly live with the end in mind. Realize how we gauge with materialism, possessions, what we focus on our, our time on, the way in which we organize our lives and our families. Realize this world is going away. It's going to be dissolved, burned up. Now that doesn't mean that this world will no longer be physical in the new heavens and the new earth. We believe it will be. But it is to caution us of putting too much stake in the things of the world here. Recall that for the false teachers, their lack of understanding regarding Christ's return led to rampant sinfulness. Sensual passions of the flesh ungodly living. But for Christians, eschatology, the end times, Christ's return, are to have a daily effect on our holiness. Positively. Including, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. This is a word that um, is a bit surprising in this passage, but I, I think has obviously very good 
implications for us. The word waiting occurs three times in this passage. Verses 12 through 14. Waiting for and hastening the coming day. We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Peter wants us to understand that our posture toward the end is one of waiting, anticipation, eagerness. Come, Lord Jesus, fulfill this purpose of yours. But not only are we to anticipate this day, wait for the day, but we can also hasten its arrival. To hasten means to speed, to quicken, to advance something. Verse 9 is important in Peter's use of the word hasten because in verse 9 it says that God is holding back the final day that we may repent. So the question we've got to ask is what does it mean that we can hasten the coming day of God. I think it follows from verse 9, as well as what the rest of the Scripture teaches, that repenting and living lives of holiness helps remove the cause for delay. If God's delay is caused by Him seeking our repentance and our holy living, then our repentance and our holy living would remove the cause for God's delay. Now, we do not, in any sense, hasten the day of the Lord ultimately. Acts 1.7 teaches that the Father has fixed the times and seasons by His own authority. Jesus said in Mark 13.22 that the Father knows the hour of the Son's return. But from our vantage point, we can hasten the day of the Lord, verse 12 by fulfilling the preconditions of Christ's return, namely the preaching of the gospel, prayer, your kingdom come, and repentance. And us meeting these conditions are how we hasten the day of God. You see there in verse 12, the day of God is used instead of the day of the Lord that you saw in verse 10. Day of the Lord is more of an unusual term, but it speaks to the day of God the Father, not the day of Christ. But what we should understand is the day of the Lord and the day of God are inseparable from each other. When the day of Christ comes, the day of God will commence and He will destroy the world in fire. So we are to live in view of the coming of Christ by being holy, by being repenters, by hastening the day of the Lord and seeking its coming. But this text gives us another reason why. And that is we are to be hopeful for the new heavens and the new earth. That God is destroying the world to establish a new world. Look with me at verse 13. But according to His promise, the return of Christ, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter clarifies that the end time destruction does not mean the end of the physical world. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth were promised by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, indeed these are the only two Old Testament passages where the idea of a new heavens and a new earth is mentioned. And Peter draws on Isaiah here in talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah Records God saying, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, 
The Lord Jesus himself said in Revelation 21.5, I am making everything new. Second Peter 3 gives us the view of a new universe. That following the destruction of the world, there will be a new world, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now a question that is asked by interpreters that we're not going to get into is will God create something brand new or will he restore, purify the old world and create a new world out of the same elements? I believe scripture teaches both. I think there's a lot of passages that talk about God making an entirely new world and a lot of passages that speak of a restoration. So however we can configure it, I think that both are going to happen and we should believe both and that the details of what God will do with the world should not necessarily be our concern. What we can say is that there will be continuity and discontinuity sameness and differences between the heavens and the earth as they exist now and what they will be in glory. The same can be said of of our own resurrection bodies, can't they? That when the Lord Jesus appeared to the disciples in the book of Acts, He had scars. He was a physical Christ. But obviously, He's in a resurrection body. So again, you see similarities, And differences between what life in glory will be like that is same and yet distinct from what we see now. Here's what we can be sure of. Heaven and earth will be qualitatively transformed. And one of the ways it will be transformed is that this will be a place in which righteousness dwells. At the end of verse 13. A place of righteousness with the Lord of righteousness, Jesus Christ himself, at the center dwelling with us. All evil extinguished. A new heavens and a new earth for us to be able to enjoy God in a way that we can't because of indwelling sin now. This new heavens and new earth will be the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Place where God dwells with His people. Where death shall be no more. Where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Where the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. Where the perishable will be raised and transformed into imperishable. What a day, glorious day that will be. Peter transitions from verse 13 with this line of thinking. Because it is only righteousness that will survive in the new heaven and new earth, it is imperative that we as Christians live righteously. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent. Diligence is um, something that Peter regularly calls his readers to. He says earlier um, in chapter 1 that we should be Diligent to obtain these great and precious promises. And verse 5, to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He uses this term, be diligent, exert effort towards in his first epistle as well. What we're to be diligent toward is personal holiness. That as Christians, it's okay and good and right and fitting for us to give effort toward living a faithful Christian life. And we're to do so to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. To be found has a judicial sense to it. 
And it pictures this idea of a courtroom in which a judgment is rendered. Christians are to be found without spot or blemish. This is, of course, in contrast to the false teachers in the church who Peter says are blots and blemishes. Chapter 2, verse 13. To be spotless and blameless here is not moral perfection. There's no way that we can live righteous enough lives to stand before God on our own apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ. But it is a righteousness nonetheless that is practical. It's a zeal and attentiveness in following Christ. So we should be diligent to live holy before the Lord and also at peace. At peace I take as enjoying the relationship we have with God and the security of our right standing with Him by faith in Christ. The false teachers have likely influenced the stability of some of these Christians. So I think Peter is closing his letter, stating that you should be at peace, in that you you should give intentionality and thought about whether or not you are saved, whether you're walking in the Lord with holiness and in sound doctrine, whether or not you will perish when the day of the Lord comes. Make sure that your calling and election are sure. Make sure you're at peace with God. Note here the connection between at peace and living holy lives. That a way in which we can be assured of God's work in our heart of regeneration and progressive sanctification is indeed if we're walking in holiness before the Lord. That is the way, friends, we can be at peace. If you do not sense peace in your heart, ask the question, what sin am I clinging to? What is keeping me from the Lord? Peter then transitions to call on the Apostle Paul. He says, Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now, before I I close this in verse 15, I, I skipped over something. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Peter takes verse 9 and he brings it back down to verse 15 and he presents a parallelism. So God is patient. God's delay expresses His patience with sinners, and that's the same idea expressed here in verse 15. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Again, what Peter is emphasizing is that the delay of the Lord is an opportunity to repent and be saved. Count the Lord's delay, not as slowness as the false teachers do, but actually as God's patience meant to lead us to repentance. Now the Apostle Paul. Peter calls upon the Apostle Paul and says that he also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. I take this as another motivation for us to live holy lives, to wait faithfully for the Lord and to hasten His coming, is that this is not a teaching that is just posited by the Apostle Peter, but also Paul and all the other biblical writers. We should live holy lives and heed Peter's exhortation because God has spoken through such men as he and Paul are carried along by the Holy Spirit in their inspired writings, as chapter 1 verse 21 says. Their writings, in other words, have a divine origin. 
What Peter is saying about the day of the Lord is from the Lord himself. It's a wisdom given to them by God and not created in their own intellectual prowess. So it seems that Paul is bringing Peter into the argument, certainly because he's an inspired writer, but also because the false teachers, it says in verse 16, are twisting his teachings to advance their own agenda. Peter encourages us by saying some things in Paul are hard to understand, and we all amen at that. And he says there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, that the wicked twist to their own destruction. The false teachers were doing so with Paul's writings. They, have, they may have latched on to a particular teaching of Paul, like salvation by grace alone or freedom from the law to live licentiously. But what Peter is saying is that Paul is not on the side of the false teachers. Notice what Peter says, our beloved Paul. That Peter and Paul are both uniformly saying the same thing about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His return. So we see in this passage several ways that we are to live in light of the coming day of the Lord. We're to repent and call others to repentance. We're to express the same patience of God in not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach a knowledge of the truth. We live holy and godly lives. We're committed to a local church. We receive God's ordinary means of grace by Christian fellowship and prayer and receiving baptism in the Lord's Supper and reading the Scripture. We wait for and hasten the fulfillment of God's promise and we seek to be at peace with God and heed God's Word. These are ways in which we should live in view of the coming day of the Lord. Peter exhorts his readers that the delay of the Lord does not put at risk the Lord's promise. The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord instead should give rise to repentance, to holy living. The day of the Lord will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, a place where righteousness dwells. Christ's return is certain. He will come for His people. And thus let us ready ourselves, waiting for and hastening the day of God, being diligent to be found by God, walking in holiness, spreading His gospel, being joyful in Him. God will bring a new world down to us, just as He came 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ. God will create a place in the new heavens and a new earth where God himself will be our God and we will be his people. And thus we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.